Welcome to Economics and Beyond. I'm Rob Johnson, President of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. I'm here today with Nancy McLean. She's the William Chafe Professor of History and Public Policy at Duke University. She's the author of several books, most recently Democracy and Change, which was a finalist for the National Book Awards. And she's recently written a paper for the, for the INET website and an article that I believe is on our cover, uh, or on the front page of our website currently, How Milton Friedman Aided and Abetted Segregationists in His Quest to Privatize Public Education. Nancy, thanks for joining me. It's a pleasure to be with you, Rob. I'm a great admirer of INET. Well, and INET's a great admirer of you, so we've got <laughs> a lot of smiling to do here. <laughs> At any rate, uh, let's start with what inspired you. This, I mean, obviously coming out of discussions related to James Buchanan and others, your awareness of the Mount Pelerin Society, its funders like the Volcker Foundation, others. I can see some momentum, but it's leading you to what you might call the front porch of Milton Friedman and this context of, how would I say, continuing and perhaps fortifying racial problems in the United States. So let's start with where, what brought you to this beachhead? Where, what brought you to this yeah, place? Yeah, it's actually a really interesting question because I never set out to find Milton Friedman or in the previous work, James Buchanan, Charles Koch, any of them. I'm a historian of the modern U.S., um, deep interest in political economy and social movements, and a particular interest in the South. And in 2006, I had just finished another book, uh, and I was at a conference in Philadelphia, and I went into the um, American Friends Service Committee archives, and there they had a display uh, involving the shutdown of the public, entire public education system in Prince Edward County, Virginia from 1959 to 1964 to punish the students there for having struck for a decent high school in one of the cases that was folded into Brown. And I was very moved by what I found. I knew, and, and I quickly found out that vouchers were involved. And so I started digging into this and I started to find people I never would have expected <laughs> to find in a trail of Virginia's massive resistance to Brown versus Board of Education. Uh, the first of those was a, a gentleman I name in the paper, Leon Durr, a former Washington Post reporter who went on to Winston-Salem and actually helped destroy the first civil rights union in America. Um, so and he was saying things like the market solves all our problems, freedom is the solution, while he was raising money for two segregation academies. So I started following Durr, but once I got into Durr's papers, there was Milton Friedman. <laughs> 
and there was James Buchanan and there were all these other organizations and so I became very interested in that and I thought initially that my story in the book would involve uh, Friedman primarily but as I learned about James Buchanan and his connections to you know um, supplying the ideas that the Koch network uh, has operated on the book shifted to Buchanan so in coming back to this research on Milton Friedman it was almost like I was it, it was unfinished business for me you know I had thought that it was really interesting that it was really important that it spoke powerfully to our own time to our own historical moment uh, but it was research that had not gone into democracy and change so I wanted it to stand independently and I thought you know what better site to publish it with than INET because you have such a global network of people who are deeply engaged with these questions of political economy and probably feel the lack of good economic history or history uh, of the profession in some of the things that you're doing. So I was hoping to uh, find some new conversation partners, I guess you would say, and it's delightful to be here with you. Well, it's a delight to have you here as well. And uh, I'm always reminded of a book that I read in my formative years by a man named Mary Ferner called Advocacy Versus Objectivity. And the book was really about, at the time of distributional tensions, late 19th century, how the abstract marginalists took over the profession from the institutionalists. Now, the, what you might call reintegration of political economy and the reintroduction or reinvigoration of the history of thought and economic history actually, how would I say, catalyzes a bridge to people like yourself that are in history departments and what you might call inherently multidisciplinary. And I think that, uh, so you set an example, particularly for our young scholars of the kind of things and kind of ways of approaching problems. And then I'm going to use my, my silly joke, the pandemic unmasked how sterile things were in economic science and there's some great rigorous evidence-based analysis and so forth, but clinging to the abstract, what I'll call idolization of the economy and not seeing these more textured elements like healthcare, like climate, like notions of the common goods, so we'll go back to Henry George, and like the question of race. And uh, I often, in my formative years, I grew up in Detroit, Michigan, uh, but I remember reading things by the Chicago School, which were suggestive that the market was the tool that was going to end racism, because if somebody's marginal product was more than they were getting paid for, there was a profit opportunity. So I, I saw those arguments being used uh, and, and market versus state arguments being used on the right. And uh, I guess what's awkward now is there are so many people that are worried about concentration of wealth, money, and politics, like my research director, Tom Ferguson, that we're, we're in a place where people on the left don't trust the government now. It's almost like they, George Stigler's work at Chicago was prescient from their standpoint. But let's, I, I'm, I need to, your help in unpacking what Milton Friedman did as an economist, what he was after, and how this relates to intensifying segregation in schools and, and, and racial polarity. 
Yeah, you know, it's interesting because Milton Friedman is, you know, such a huge name uh, in the field today and certainly among, you know, whatever we want to call them, civilians, those of us. And in other arenas, he's really a household name. But in this period, he was the young guy. You know, when he went to the Mont Pelerin Society founding meeting in 1947, he was kind of a kid, you know, among the big luminaries uh, at the time, you know, Hayek and von Mises and his own, uh, or, um, his colleague, Frank Knight. Um, and uh, he was not a big player. And I think part of what happened, you know, he came home and he wrote uh, this piece that, you know, is well known, Neoliberalism and Its Prospects, in 1951. And he was very anxious to turn the tide of public opinion, to really find a way to uh, to shift people from the kind of Keynesian world that, uh, you know, prevailed then, the support for the New Deal, for labor unions, Social Security, you know, public goods of all kinds. And I think what happened, as near as I can tell, is is that when the fights began over uh, equal schooling in the South, um, he was noticing. You couldn't help but notice. It was in all the national newspapers. The strike in Prince Edward County by the black high school students was in 1951, um, uh, became involved in the NAACP litigation. And you had Southern uh, reactionary governors saying that they would shut down the public school systems before they'd integrate. You know, you had James uh, Jackson Kilpatrick in at the Richmond News Leader, the day that the black students filed in Prince Edward County their lawsuit, he said, it's time to start talking about private schooling. So all this news is bubbling up. I mean, I can't prove or deny that Milton Friedman read this, but any regular newspaper reader of the time would have known this was, was bubbling. And he used the occasion of a fest shrift to publish this piece called The Role of Government in Education, which was really, and he wanted it to be a kind of a manifesto to say, even if government funds education, why should government provide it? And he even fought on language. He said, why do we call them public schools? We should call them government schools, right? And he used in that piece all the kind of language that has become part and parcel of the school choice movement today, language of choice and liberty and parental rights and parental control. But he was writing this piece, issuing this piece just at the moment when uh, resistance to the Brown versus Board of Education decision was heating up uh, in the South, and the the one of the crucial elements of massive resistance was tax-funded vouchers for private segregation academies, because they actually understood that white solidarity was a myth that there weren't enough white parents who cared deeply enough about segregation to dig deeply into their own pockets and fund private school tuition for their kids. So they needed those public dollars. And Friedman, I think, you know, appreciated that. He saw that and he saw it as an opportunity. You know, by this point, you know, he had spoken of his economic views as a new faith. You know, he used a language of conversion. And so he was deeply um, of the mind that what he had uh, uh imbibed um, through the Mont Pelerin Society and beyond was really a kind of gospel that would free the world and make it better. And he just couldn't take in any evidence to the contrary. And he rebuffed it when it came from his contemporaries, such as Robert Solo, not Robert Solo, the uh, Nobel Prize winner, but another economist with the same name and no W on the end.
he raised all the questions you or I would raise today in the correspondence that I cite in the paper, and Friedman would hear none of it. He wouldn't respond to a single particular of what uh, what Solo raised. In fact, he said to even consider questions of prejudice would put one on a par with the Nazis, with Hitler enforcing uh, what did he call it? Tastes and um, uh, tastes and something else. You know the, the language of taste in in uh, neoclassical economics. But anyway, so. That intrigued me, uh, finding that correspondence, and, and the, more, the deeper I dug, the more I found uh, that seemed really important to surface, because we're also in a situation today, in our current moment, when we see the libertarian right in this country, particularly the, the organizations uh, and operations funded by Charles Koch, being willing to weaponize uh, prejudice of all kinds, use disinformation, uh, and so forth to achieve their ends. You know, we've just seen that uh, Koch funded an organization that was promoting vaccine denial and school board fights about mask wearing. We know the climate denial runs back for decades, the work with the tobacco companies in the 1980s, the funding of these politicians who were involved in the January 6th election. So it just seemed like to me this was a good time for some deep truth telling. And as a historian, you know, I believe passionately, it's, you know, the nature of my craft that um, history is powerful. You know, as James Baldwin said, it's, you know, with us in all we do. uh, William Faulkner, the past is never dead, right? So, you know, until we come to terms with what human actors did in our in our past and the consequences of that, I don't think that we can solve the problems that we're faced with right now in our world. Mm Mm-hmm. So let's let's talk a little bit about Friedman in the correspondence that you saw with Robert Solo. It's spelled like Napoleon Solo, but uh, uh, different than the Nobel laureate from MIT, who happened to be my undergraduate advisor. Oh, but, really? Uh, he was my colleague at the Russell Sage Foundation when ah, I was a fellow there. Yeah. And, uh, but coming back... Is the sense that you get from reading this that Milton Friedman is talking like he's a racist and that's his motivation? Or is his motivation more related to wanting more market, smaller government, government's not responsive, and this was a place in the spectrum of things that are provided in society where reducing the size of government was what mattered to him. And then I'll ask the second dimension of this, which is even if he wasn't on board with race, did he see these, what you might call strange bedfellows like the Ku Klux Klan or explicitly racist groups as a conduit to his mission, just as they might see him as a conduit to their mission in keeping schools segregated. How conscious do you think yeah, he was yeah, of that um, of the partnership's consequences? Uh, important questions. The first thing I do is rule the Ku Klux Klan out of court. You know, the Ku Klux Klan was not playing a big role here, actually, and I think that is kind of telling too. What we were talking about, particularly in Virginia, which is you know the, the site of my story, is an elite 
that had profited from and worked to maintain racial capitalism since before the U.S. was a country, right? The plantation elite there were the first to adopt racial slavery. They created one of the most undemocratic systems uh, in America. Um, the, the great political scientist V.O. Key in his book about uh, Southern politics said that um, compared to uh, Vir- compared to Virginia, Mississippi was a hotbed of democracy. <laughs> so in other words, these are mainly elite actors. They are not the northern stereotype of who is a racist and who is enforcing this system. This was a system that Virginia's elite profited from mightily, and they had the tightest political organization in, in the South in that period. Of the, It was interlocking corporate and political elites. Nothing went on without Harry Byrd's organization ruling it okay. And this elite had first tried to defend uh, segregation of public education in the Brown case. Actually, the president of the University of Virginia, Colgate Darden, testified for segregation um, and then went on to hire James Buchanan later and set up this you know, center for um, uh political economy. Uh, anyway, so so first I think we need to really um, understand how racism works in a way that African American and many white scholars have been encouraging us to do for a long time, but I don't think our media does such a good job with it, or many of our churches, because they ask us to think about racism as a, as a sin of the heart, right? A, a personal kind of ailment. Um, and that is the language in which James Buchanan was defended by many of his colleagues when I tried to point out his history and democracy in chains. And that's really not the relevant question. I mean, I don't know what was in James Buchanan's heart. I don't care. I don't know what was in Milton Friedman's heart. I don't care. I don't think he was primarily um, uh, activated by racism. Not at all. But I think he clung to an economic dogma that said that freeing markets from any government interference would solve every problem in the world. And that's why he opposed federal fair employment practices uh, laws when they were supported by every major African-American organization in the country and the labor movement. That's why he opposed the Civil Rights Act and and worked as an economic advisor to Barry Goldwater, who was against Social Security, against minimum wage, etc. So I don't think, you know, Milton Friedman wasn't going down there and speaking in the same tones as the white citizens' councils, but he was working with, the the Virginian I show him working with, this former New York Times reporter who had retired to a huge horse farm outside Charlottesville, you know, Friedman was working with him. This guy was publicly known as a fundraiser for two segregationist academies in Charlottesville, uh, one named after Robert E. Lee. You know, he worked with James Buchanan and Warren at the University of Virginia. They were all supporting this effort to get tax-funded school vouchers in the name of freedom, but the problem was those vouchers were opposed to a person by African Americans, to a person by the NAACP, who knew that this was an effort to steal the victory they won in Brown versus Board of Education. So I actually quote in the paper uh, Oliver Hill, who was the lead Virginia attorney involved in the Brown versus Board of Education decision, and he just said it plainly. He said, no one has a right to have his private prejudices uh, subsidized by tax dollars. 
And that's what these guys were trying to do. They were trying to make taxpayers subsidize the parents who did not want their white children to go to school with black children. I mean, it was that simple. <laughs> like, there's no getting around the reality on the ground there. And Friedman said he supported their right to do that in the name of freedom. He also said he opposed forced segregation. But at the same time, he never recognized the complexities that Robert Solo tried to point out to him. Robert Solo said, hey, how can you say this? Black, black people can't even vote in the South. They can't control the government that's taking their tax dollars to fund these segregation academies. How can you even be talking about freedom in a context like this? You know, they need collective action. They need the courts. They need force, basically, to break up this otherwise rock-solid system. And Friedman would have none of it. And he worked closely with the people who were trying to get those tax dollars to segregation academies. So again, what's in his heart, to me, as a historian, it's not really relevant. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a mind reader. I'm not a personal biographer. But it doesn't matter. And to me, to be honest, though, because I've been asked this question so much about James Buchanan, if I were an ethicist and I were asked to choose, what's worse, someone who operates in the heat of passion from a deeply believed commitment that a whole other group of people are inferior to them, is, is that worse or is it worse for someone who doesn't hold that view, who knows those views are wrong, who knows they're pernicious and they have human costs, but says, you know what, I'm going to use these people to get this thing I want. You know, in a lot of ways, that's what Republican, wealthy Republican voters do now. You know, they're saying, okay, beat up on the black people and the immigrants, take away their voting rights, take away abortion rights for women, but just don't raise my taxes. It's all I care about, right? And, and to me, you know, again, you know, I'm not a religious person, but I have a lot of respect for many really good people of faith. And, you know, I think the ethical, the ethics would say, it's, it's a greater sin if you don't believe it, but you're willing to use dark forces like that. And in fact, we see the Koch network doing this transnationally. Um, Peter Botke, who is the outgoing uh, past head of the Mont Pelerin Society based at the Koch you know, um, operation at George Mason, um, he is quoted in Ian Wasserman's uh, book about um, Austrian economics, saying we have to give up the, the label of Austrian economics because it's been too corrupted by the alt-right and the, the racist forces who have enlisted that. And he's saying that because part of the Hayek Society uh, in uh, Germany and in Austria, they're playing footsie with these neo-Nazis, top people in those organizations that are part of the Atlas Network are starting to work with street fascists and talk about getting their, uh, somebody like Trump to carry their movement because they know their ideas will never be popular otherwise. You know, they can't get masses of people to line up for an agenda of privatizing Social Security and public education, stopping action on the climate, not having anti-discrimination uh, uh, um, enforcement. So, so we're talking about a cause here that is really far outside of the normal pale, but because it's so wealthy, they have been able to um, uh, create what James Buchanan called a gravy train to bring many uh, people, mostly young men, into this and, and get them in for the long term. So it looks really academically respectable, but they don't act like normal academics. You know, it's not a disinterested pursuit of truth. They engage in a form of denialism whenever any inconvenient uh, evidence comes along. 
Well, as you know from economic theory, the notion of public goods, common good, externalities are considered to be exceptions rather than what you might call of large import. And so pursuing that mission unmindfully about the scope and scale of what I'll call the externalities of the structures that they're promoting does not make them innocent. And I've been in this last couple of years, uh, how would I say, found very illuminating the work of a man named Ibram X. Kendi, K-E-N-D-I, where he's book on, called Stamped, and then another one about how to be an anti-racist. When he, he explores, he's saying, racism is here. It's a long legacy, and it's very um, resistant to change. And you're not race neutral if you allow it to persist and look the other way. Or you're not race neutral if you're doing things that aid in the bed those structures and fortify their resistance. His view is an anti-racist who is someone who is conscious of what's happening and takes on the challenges, the policies, the mindsets, the habit structures, so that it no longer stays with us. And so I think uh, Kendi's illumination of and if you will, what it takes to go beyond is in some ways uh, reminiscent in my reading to what Naomi Klein wrote about in Climate Change in a book called This Changes Everything. Because she was saying, in essence, these people aren't saying that there is no climate problem. What they're saying is, if we acknowledge a climate problem and government plays a role, that upends all the other things we want to do towards smaller role for government and more free markets. It creates a legitimacy for government intervention. And here, I think what Kendi is saying is similar, but also, if you're just going to sleep, you are complicit in this corrupt order which persists. I think those are incredibly helpful analogies, Rob. Um, Yeah, Ibram Kendi's work is is really important in drawing our attention to the structures of power, you know, the practices, all of these things that maintain uh, the system. And sadly, for that, he has been brutally attacked from uh, the right, and particularly this li- libertarian right funded by the, the Charles Koch uh, Foundation and, and you know uh, its, its fellow donors in, in the network, but they have actually funded a lot of these attacks on critical race theory, you know, that are basically um, trying to stop us from coming to that institutional reckoning with racism as America was seeming ready to do, particularly after the, the murder of George Floyd. Um, I think they're also weaponizing that issue going into the 2022 midterm so that people won't think about how popular the economic policies of the current administration actually are, and instead they're inciting fights at school boards. Um, so it's really dangerous stuff, but I think the other uh, um, association you made to Naomi Klein's book about the climate is also really apt because, you know, when I look at the 
history of when the Koch network really started to uh, mobilize these operations that I wrote about in my book, uh, the timing is really crucial. It was in the 1990s, late 1997, just after the Global Tobacco Treaty was showing that tobacco corporations had horribly misled the public for years and they were being held to account for that. And the Koch folks and the people at George Mason had worked with the tobacco industry, um, you know, in the 1980s and 90s to deny the truth about tobacco. Now they were turning toward climate. And this was a time when, if you remember, George Herbert Walker Bush was acknowledging climate change, saying we have to get ahead of this, we have to deal with this. It was the time of the Kyoto Accords. And it was at that point that Koch and, you know, these fellow, it's not all capitalists, it's a minority, but a very active right-wing militant minority said, you know, this is existential. We have to stop this. And so, you know, what is the first thing that they went after is stopping the Paris Accords. Um, and they've also been active. And, you know, here I'm drawing on another piece I did on the Atlas Network, which is the transnational arm of all of this. But they seem to be working with these right-wing populists in different countries that will also derail the climate agenda, derail the anti-racist agenda. So you have um, partners, you know, in Britain, most famously, the Institute for Economic Affairs, um, supporting Boris Johnson, supporting Brexit. Um, you have Bolsonaro, you know, conducting similar stuff. You have, in, oh, sorry, you have um, Australia. In Australia, the the allies of this, the, the, the think tank there, whose name escapes me at the moment, but saying, you know, could the Donald come to Oz? You know, could we have our own Donald Trump? And lo and behold, you know, it happens. So, I mean, it's a tremendously complex operation that needs more research on every continent so that we can get to the bottom of what's going on here. But I think you put your finger with those analogies on two of the absolutely uh, critical elements here. And one is the effort to deal with deeply rooted historical structural inequality that goes back to slavery and, and uh, colonialism, uh, to say nothing of gender and sexuality, right? But but that, that has certainly been one driver. And then the other one is trying to take action on climate change and the risks that fossil fuels uh, pose to our planet. And so what we're seeing is a cause that is willing to make allies of uh, groups like the religious right and push through all these attacks on abortion. You know, in my state, they had this, what was, you know, notoriously became known as the bathroom bill um, to um, uh, get their voters to the polls, um, you know, and weaponizing prejudice against trans people. So, you know, I know we're just, it's just an audio recording, but I'm looking at you thinking like, we, this is such a huge thing to get our arms around. And, you know, I don't think we have nearly enough scholars working on this and following this money train to understand the, the self-consciously interlocking operations uh, that all of this has become part of. Now, here's, can I, if I may, go back to an interesting point about Milton Friedman. One thing that I did love about researching Friedman is he was very honest and open. And so, when I went through his papers, you know, he just, he said what he thought to everybody. So I'd be writing to my husband from the archives. Can you believe he's saying this like over and over again? He talked about how vouchers were not an end in themselves. They were a tactic. School choice was a tactic. He wanted to privatize education completely so that parents, as he said, would pay for their children's education like they do for their food and shelter. In the libertarian dream world, we have no public education. We have no post office. We have no national 
national parks. You know, that is that is the dream world. And Friedman, to his credit, was honest about it. And in 2005, I saw him saying, um, you know, why don't we just wrap up the Mont Pelerin Society? You know, we've won. Everybody believes in markets now. You know, enough is enough. But these other figures, like Koch and James Buchanan, are like, no, we want to go on and rig the rules of the game to get what we want. Um, so, so I think that poses a challenge to folks like us who are in, um, you know, academic spaces and spaces that, you know, where we think, well, empirical research should be the deciding factor, right? If you can prove your point um, with research, you know, with findings of whether it's statistics or archival research, um, you know, then we can settle some of these these vexed debates. But what I learned in seeing the, you know, attacks on my work from some of these uh, Koch-funded professors is that they're not interested in the truth, right? They're not interested in an honest look at this history of the movement or of some of its leading thinkers and actors. What they want to do is take down the messengers, you know, so character assassination of, you know, established respected scholars, um, denial of the substance of what they've written, refusal to engage in the core findings of the research, and instead a kind of silly, um, you know, kind of bait and switch operation, which we see in all denialist movements. They try to change the subject, you know, they pick some microscopic little point in hopes that they can discredit the whole, you know, um, uh, case by some little tiny point. And um, anyway, it's, it's kind of fascinating to see it work, but I don't think we as a country are prepared for the levels of disinformation that are coming from self-interested actors. You know, and certainly we saw that in the Trump presidency. You know, we see that on the issue of voter suppression, climate denial, um, you know, the anti-abortion movement, um, so many of these things. You know, you have powerful, well-funded interests who are deliberately polluting the public debate. You know, I know... uh for instance, the scholar Naomi Oreskes yes, has written she's books, the friend, yeah. uh, you know, Merchants of Doubt. And you, you were referring earlier to the tobacco era and how that propagated. Michael Mann at Penn State, who was a guest on this podcast a few months ago, on the nature of what you might call disinformation strategies to uh, arrest the attempt to bring fossil fuels, how would I say, to a lower value as assets because of the side effects that they produce. And so there's, I think there's a lot of uh, anxiety now, particularly after the onset of the pandemic, that we can identify climate change, the IPCC reports and so, but we don't have a strategy in the context of our real political economy and information systems and concentrations of wealth and money politics, etc., to move forward. And I think it's starting to scare people a great deal that it's almost like being sent to the doctor and getting diagnosed for a critical illness, but then not being able to be treated. Yes. It's, that's a really, you just have really to sit there and analogy. take it. And that's scary. 
That's haunting. But if if our democracies were functioning well and normally, we would be able to address these issues. But what we see instead, and I'll just now talk about the the U.S. case, um, is strategic actors. And again, I I don't think anyone other than a few scholars and and independent researchers has really come to grips with, and and journalists, heroic journalists like um, uh, Jane Mayer, but how big the Koch network is and what they have wrought. But what you see is state after state, this really smart strategy to get control of state legislatures, state governments, where so many of the rules about democracy, about labor, about education are made, and then use that control of state governments, now 30, to systematically rewrite the rules. So to engage in the most radical redistricting we've ever seen in our political history, using the most sophisticated uh, technology and the most most audacious power grabs uh, that really misrepresent the citizenry on all questions in in, st- in many of our state legislatures, including my own in North Carolina, um, to uh, engage in voter suppression, uh, mass voter suppression, uh, you know, under the misleading rubric that this is somehow election integrity when there is no problem of voter fraud, um, to undermine the power of labor unions, which they know will add, you know, at least 3, 3% to their side from the other sides. I mean, this is very, very smart strategic stuff. Going back to our earlier discussion, this is not the Ku Klux Klan crowd, you know, in hoods coming out of the gas station. No, this is really determined actors and some of the richest men in the world. And, you know, here I point to Charles Koch, who understand, who see an existential threat to their current and future profit stream from action on the climate and are willing to wreck democracy and stir up all these demons in order to make sure that that doesn't happen. So, you know, my conclusion from my book research, but I think it would also be true from this paper, is that um, informing people of what's happening and prioritizing democracy reform are the most critical things that we can do in this moment to make sure, you know, we're, we're at the time I wrote Democracy in Chains, it's probably worse now, we were, um, I believe the figure was, it's in the conclusion, 132 of 178 democracies in the levels of voter participation. That's a scandal, right? We should be ashamed of that. We should be doing everything that we can to make sure that people are participating in elections. But instead, we we have this cause, which has used donor control and Fox News and weaponizing the base to stir up, um, to, 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 to essentially capture one of our political parties. Um, and they are preventing us from taking action, you know, on any of this. And and they're actually making it worse um, as we speak. And, you know, I just, I don't think a lot of the mainstream media has gotten on top of this. You know, what it means that we have two different media universes. I don't know if you've ever interviewed um, Yokai Benkler at Harvard, a really interesting communication scholar, but who has written about how Fox News and Breitbart are just a bubble. Like, in the rest of the spectrum, we all go around. I read the way, you know, I'm not a fan of the Wall Street Journal editorial page, but I read it, the paper, you know, and you, you read, you sample this broad media. Well, for the core base that they have there, which is now the base of voters of the Republican Party, they don't get out. And what they get is a daily diet of having their identity um, uh, um 
consolidated and then uh, they're made to feel embattled so it's almost like a stress response and you have to go out and fight the other side so you're right that it's it's just so frustrating because on issue after issue the vast majority including republican voters you know knows that we there's things we need to do you know as people as societies and we're not being able to do it because of the way that our our democracy has been um, shackled and distorted by these forces yeah i'll cite a uh, scholar who again was a teacher of mine as an undergraduate but he's been a uh, inet uh, research we've funded a lot of his research and it's the professor emeritus peter timmon oh yes he's wonderful Uh, and he wrote a book called the vanishing middle class which as we were approaching a conference in detroit michigan he emphasized how we had You know, in the old days of W. Arthur Lewis's vision, you walked from the farm to the city. You went from agriculture to manufacturing. Well, metaphorically, what Peter was saying is now what you do is walk from low margin services through the education system to high margin services. But in the context of economic distress, whether globalization caused, technology caused, environment caused, or policy caused, People adopt otherness, racial animosity, as what you might call the false enemy. Yes. And what Peter was concerned about was for both black and white people and Hispanics and Asians, the animosity that was being caused in the school system was breaking the rungs in the ladder from the low margin to the high margin services. So to use W. Arthur Lewis analogy, you weren't going to walk into that high level unless you created fortified school systems while everybody was cutting local budgets. Peter's next book, which is now uh, coming out, I believe, soon under uh, Cambridge University Press INET series, is called Never Together. And it's about from Reconstruction to the present, all of the counter strategies to racial healing. Prison industrial Uh system, uh, education things, access to medicine, uh, some well-intentioned things that came from people like Eleanor Roosevelt that were constantly undermined. But it, he just tells the story of this of this conflict. And I, uh, how would I say, I'd never like to end a podcast on a disheartening note. But understanding where you are and what the real struggle is, like you say, the the scholars that illuminate what the challenge is, what it has been, or how it's not been met becomes important. But now let's say President Biden or the UN invited you to speak tomorrow. What's your what's your healing strategy with regard to racial animosity in America? I heard you allude to something before about the relationship of money and politics freeing up scholars, correcting the media system, which you said is, which you might call filled with disinformation as a conscious strategy. But where, where do you take us so that my young scholars have a, a, a place to march? 
yeah. in their minds. Well, I would say absolutely this question of money and politics is, you know, number one, it's killing us, right? In domain after domain. And the fact that you can use dark money in politics, that you can push out all this pollution of our public discourse and have the donors not be able to, sorry, uh, not be able to um, uh, be held accountable for that is, is really, really a problem. As I said before, I think democracy reform so that the actual will of the people can be felt and heard and acted on in politics because that's another thing that has affected us. I mean, I think it is interesting to pay attention to those two-time Obama voters who then voted for Trump, right? Like, leave all the other ones out of the equation, but that is a puzzle that needs to be solved. And as near as I've been able to gather from the research, those were people who actually thought that something was going to change for the better in their lives. And when it didn't, they got pissed (laughs) and they wanted to break the house and they were willing to try anything. But so, you know, as I was writing um, the book, um, Democracy in Chains, I was thinking, you know, I'm a historian. I was like, what are these people thinking on the right? Because if you render democracy inoperable, right, and the people cannot use the channels they, they, they need to in order to get relief from the problems that are, are, are afflicting them, they're not just going to go to sleep and say, oh, gee, you know, the market's not doing it either. I guess I just am inferior. That's the end of that. You know, no, they're going to go right or they're going to go left and they're going to polarize. And, you know, at this point, the right is much stronger in our country and in many others than the left, sadly. But, you know, it was amazing to be doing that research and thinking this and then get to 2016, where the two most um, uh, popular actors for a time were Bernie Sanders on the left and Donald Trump on the right. So so we've got to make democracy responsive. I think on the, the uh, racial questions, um, here I would take a lead from some of the great research done at Demos. Um, so Ian Haney Lopez, has a law professor at Berkeley has a wonderful book called Merged Left that describes a research project they did in talking to voters where they actually ran different scripts. You know, they only talked about issues of racism or they only talked about issues of class inequality and neither one of those were very effective. But when they helped people see that there are powerful, wealthy interests who are pitting us against one another so that we can't act on the things we have in common, then they broke through. So, um, and also uh, Heather McGee, who had been the head of uh, Demos, now is Color of Change, but she wrote a fantastic book that came out, I believe it was last year, or the last year before that, I lost track of time in COVID, but it's called The Sum of Us. And it's about this question of getting beyond a world in which essentially white people will cut off their noses to spite their faces if it means they can keep blacks worse off. And her her driving metaphor in this book is a swimming pool uh, in Alabama. I forget whether it was Birmingham or uh, Montgomery, but it was a state-of-the-art swimming pool. It was beautiful. It had you know all these diving boards, all these wonderful things. And when the whites in the community realized they'd have to let black families come in and swim they paved it over so they took away their own great wonderful public resource despite um these people that they had been made to think of as different and other um so i would say you know as an academic i always want to point you know to more more good reading but i would say that those those two works ian haney lopez's merge left and and um heather mcgee's the sum of us they're both very readable and i think they really help us 
us move the conversation where it needs to go on this. And um, I'm really looking forward to Peter Temin's book. He's been just such an illuminating commentator on, on these issues for so long. Yeah, I've had the good fortune of being in a group that meets on racial issues with Ian Haney Lopez, and I have to oh, affirm how insightful he and John Powell, who's at the yes. Haas Center, uh, who's a member of INET's board, and there, there are many others in that group, but, but he has always been, how would I say, someone I've learned a great deal from. And, yes, uh, yeah. So, I, and Heather, has I've known her since... Geez, many years, because uh, we worked a little bit side-by-side side when I was at the Roosevelt Institute on issues related to the Dodd-Frank legislation and oh, right. all uh-huh. of that. And, and she's, I think, also uh, family comes from Michigan. I know her mother worked in the philanthropic world for years and uh, may still. But uh, so they're, you, they're uh, and Rashad Robinson's Color of Change yeah. is... Uh, an extraordinary organization as well. So I feel like you're you're giving us good guidance. And, oh, thank uh, you. It's been such a pleasure talking and, with you. And, and you too. Yeah, it's so important to open wider conversations on these issues. It's important, and it's important for people to see your conviction and you as a model of the courage that it takes to not be what you might call deterred from expressing what you feel. And that, I think is the gift that this podcast can give to our our future scholars is to underscore how much insight and courage and enthusiasm for the repair of society when, at a time when people are very scared that model is very important so thanks for being with me today and thank you for all your work thank you for staying in this vibrant debate and uh, they're going to have to drag me out by my feet <laughs> <laughs> ain't going any other way <laughs> well that's that's the right that's the right attitude so yeah. we'll do another episode around the corner sometime in the future but this was a great that start. sounds wonderful it's been a pleasure yeah. thank you and check out more from the Institute for New Economic Thinking at ineteconomics.org and I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it And reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it And I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking But I'll know my song well before I start singing